Is there something wrong? Warning. Life support failure on all decks. Abandon ship. Maybe it is time to take command. Bridge to Captain. Join Jan Shaw updating current events as only Jan can. Library computer. Data being received. Produced by CosmicReality.com. Hello and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Cosmic Creating Show. My name is Jan Shaw. I'm known as the Success Alchemist. You can find me at the successalchemist.net, thewebalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com, on Facebook and YouTube, Jan Shaw the Success Alchemist, on Twitter at Coach Jan Shaw, on uh, Truth Social Now, Success Alchemist. And also on Telegram, my channel is US UK Patriot. Today is the 28th of May, 2022. And the title of today's show is Uvalde, Texas Mass Shooting False Flag? Sussman and Durham latest. Pfizer CEO says the quiet part out loud. Now, I don't usually like that cliche, but in this case, it's about the best way of describing it. I'll get to that later. So there's all sorts of weird stuff happening in relation to this mass shooting that happened uh, earlier this week. And really, it has got the digital soldiers, the citizen journalists digging deep and, and finding all these contradictions, um, things that just don't add up. So I'm going to start with an article by Gateway Pundit, which is how uh, the new detailed timeline, what really happened in Uvalde, Texas. And this was published yesterday evening. And it says it, uh, the article originally appeared on CanCon Substack. Before I begin, if you believe Uvalde, Parkland or any of the other school shootings didn't happen, stop reading. So let's just clarify for a moment um, what we mean by a false flag. We don't mean that um, it didn't happen or that nobody was killed or injured. It means that this was a deliberately orchestrated um, event to push a particular agenda. And we know that Democrats are desperate to get rid of the Second Amendment, to, to put more gun control laws in. And unfortunately, we have rhinos like Mitch McConnell uh, looking at supporting um, stricter gun laws in partnership with the Democrat Party. So not going down at all well with the Patriots, I have to say, particularly as there was another incident um, in which a guy with a, an AR-15 started shooting at um, people. I can't remember exactly what the event was. And he was shot and killed by a woman who was uh, carrying a gun. So it just shows that, you know, in those circumstances, if somebody is there able to take somebody out without them wreaking the destruction and the, the deaths that from a, from a shooting like that, 
then that's a very strong case for carrying a weapon, particularly when we know that uh, lawbreakers don't follow gun laws. I mean, it's really obvious, is it not? And as I've said, you know, if somebody stabs somebody with a knife, does that mean all knives have to be banned? Um, the guy who ran through that parade in Waukesha, I think it was, um, in an SUV, does that mean we have to ban SUVs? But the the anti-Second Amendment people say, well, somebody used a gun in a sick and evil way, therefore we must stop anybody from having a gun. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, I went off the track a bit there, so let me get back to this article. So continuing, as we all try our best to make sense of another mass killing in the United States, we're learning more and more about the situation and getting a better picture of what did and didn't happen. It is of the utmost importance to make sense of these events and learn from them, so much so that if we had done exactly that on February 14, 2018, we may have a different situation today. I'm going to outline the series of events as stated by law enforcement officials in Uvalde, Texas, regarding the shooting, followed by some questions that I feel are incredibly relevant and need answers. But before we start the timeline, we must first ask an extremely important question. How did an 18-year-old man with no known employment, who was living with his grandmother because of an addicted mother, afford two expensive firearms made by Daniel Defence, $2,000 each, which, um, as an aside... Uh, I'm told that that particular uh, gun is a favourite of the FBI, raises eyebrows. Um, an EOTech Optic, $400 to $700, 1,657 rounds of .223 ammo, $800 to $1,000, depending on how they were purchased, Body armor, five hundred to a thousand, and over sixty magazines, ten to twenty dollars each, for a total of approximately six thousand three hundred to eight thousand. Most established adult Americans, especially after the last two years and the current economy, can't afford a fraction of that. But this young eighteen-year-old was able to do so with no known job and all on a debit, not credit card in a border town reportedly overrun by the worst of the worst from the US border, I'll let you make your own assumptions. And there's an image of these two guns that he had. Um, now the timeline. This we know. Well, at least we've been told. Initial reports yesterday from Texas DPS spokesman Victor Escalon stated that Salvador Ramos shot his grandmother DM'd some friends about it on Facebook, telling them he was now going to shoot up a school, and then drove to Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. At 11.28am, he crashed his truck into a large drainage ditch. It appears as though he drove into the ditch by crashing the gate that was securing it, smashing up the front of the truck and snapping the axles on the front left and rear left of the truck. According to Escalon's presser, this commotion caused two men from the funeral home to come outside and approach the truck. Ramos shot at the two men and they quickly fled uninjured. 
The map below shows the funeral home, Rob Elementary, where the truck crashed, and the unobstructed view out of the windows of the school. It also shows the area of the doorway where Ramos allegedly entered the building. Now is where things get confusing. Yesterday, Victor Escalon told us that at 11.40 he walks into the west side of Rob Elementary. According to reports, video we have obtained from outside, inside, and again, we're still combing through that, so bear with us. Multiple rounds, numerous rounds are discharged in the school. Four minutes later, 11.44, local police departments are inside making entry. This would imply that there was approximately 12 minutes between the crash and initial shots and Ramos's ultimate entry into the school. According to Escalon, this is confirmed by video. I would imagine that in his notes for the press conference, he had the times from the video written down and referenced those. He was descriptive enough to tell us what he did inside the building. At 11.40, he walks approximately 20 to 30 feet. He walks into the hallway, he makes a right, walks another 20 feet, turns left into a schoolroom, into a classroom that has doors that open in the middle. Now again, that time is important. That is now twice Escalon has referenced that time, 11.40, as the time he entered and said it came from video evidence that they have. Enter Colonel Stephen McGraw, Director of Texas DPS today. His timeline is as follows. 11.27, one minute before Ramos crashes his truck, a teacher props open the door, which Ramos eventually uses to enter the school. This door is reportedly normally locked. 11.28, Ramos crashes into the ditch. The teacher runs to room 132 to retrieve a phone. The same teacher walks back to the exit door and the door remains propped open. No time given, Ramos opens the truck and two men from the funeral home who are checking on him take off running when they see a gun. They are shot at but no one is hit. 11.30, the teacher runs back inside, panicked, and apparently calls 911. Door remains propped open. The use of the word apparently is peculiar. At this point in the investigation, with this detailed of a timeline, you would think that teacher has been identified, confirmed, and a statement taken that they did in fact call 911. 11.31, Sus suspect reaches last row of vehicles in school parking lot. 11.31, suspect shoots at school, not from inside the school, while patrol vehicles get to the funeral home just 100 to 250 feet away from the school opening. It is at this point that McGraw reiterates Escalon's point that there was no UCISD officer, Uvalde County Independent School District, on scene or on campus but that the officer, who was normally on campus, sped back to where he thought the shooter would be, which turned out to be a teacher. In doing so, he drove right by the suspect, who was hunkered down behind a vehicle. Ramos then began shooting at the school. 11.32. Suspect shoots more rounds into the school. 11.33. Suspect enters the school. 
Note, law enforcement is reportedly at the funeral home 100 to 200 feet from the entrance Ramos used. In the two minutes that reportedly elapsed, no one was able to pinpoint his location and engage. Had the door been properly closed and locked, Ramos would not have gained entry to the school, at least not as easily as he did. 11.33. Suspect shoots into room 111 or 112. It is unclear from video. Audio evidence suggests he shot at least 100 rounds. 11.35. Three police officers, Uvalde PD, enter the same door Ramos used. Then another team of three UPD officers and a Uvalde Sheriff deputy enter. Two of the first three officers received grazing wounds from the suspect while the door was closed. 11.37 to 11.44. 16 more rounds were fired by Ramos. 11.51. A police sergeant and U.S. Border Patrol agents arrive. 12.03. Officers continue to arrive. As many as, as, many as 19 officers are now in the hallway outside the classroom. 12.15, BORTAC, Border Patrol Tactical Unit, members arrive with ballistic shields. 12.21, suspect shoots again. 11.50, and it's got 12.50 question mark. They breached the door using keys from janitor because both doors were locked when officers arrived. Suspect is killed. Both of these timelines comparatively are very confusing and somewhat contradictory of each other. How is it that two full days after the event, the timestamps from the videos used for yesterday's press conference were not accurately portrayed to the press, but distances and other relevant details were? There is already enough pressure and outrage over the fact that it took almost an hour and a half from the wreck to the suspect's demise, the majority of that with remorse inside the classroom. Such reporting inaccuracies from DPS is ridiculous and leads to lack of faith and transparency in reporting. Shimon Prokupech of CNN put it best when he asked Escalon yesterday, what were the officers doing between 11.44 and 12.44? We've been given a lot of bad information, so why don't you clear all of this up now and explain to us how your officers were in there for an hour, yes, rescuing people, but no one was able to get inside that room. After today's press conference, there are a ton of new questions, but I'm just a small-time citizen journalist who will never get the opportunity. Why, number one, why did a teacher prop open a secure entry exactly one minute before the shooter arrived on scene? Two, why did that teacher not close the door and ensure it was locked when they reportedly saw the accident? The shots fired, retrieved their phone and called 911 to report it. Three, Colonel McGraw said the teacher apparently called 911. Has DPS confirmed the teacher called 911? Have they confirmed it was a teacher who propped open the door? Four, why did the timeline shrink by seven minutes from yesterday to today when yesterday's press conference was given based on video evidence as stated by Escalon in the presser? It was not as if Escalon responded to a question off the cuff with the times. It was part of his deliberate and detailed statement to the press. Are you telling me something as important as time, which he reiterates the time twice, 
was inaccurate on the video, or did he just make up 11.40 when he was writing the press conference without bothering to confirm the time? 5. Where was the school's police officer and why was he not on school property? Where was he that he was able to respond in under three minutes' time, but unable to find the wreck truck and correlate the closest entry to the school to the wreck? How did he not hear the gunshots going off in his immediate vicinity when he or other officers were reportedly at the funeral home? 6. Why were seven officers not able to breach a room with two doors and windows to eliminate the suspect? 7. Why could they still not breach the room with 19 officers? 8. Why did it take a BORTAC unit and ballistic shields to breach the room? 9. Why was BORTAC even there? A federal law enforcement agency tasked with border protection is somehow unseen in a school shooting. And initially um, it was reported that it was a single uh, border officer that actually went in and shot the uh, shot Ramos, and then it changed to being the Border Patrol SWAT team. Um, anyway, continuing. 10. Why were U.S. Marshals out front of the school in adequate PPE personal protective equipment, holding back parents and waving tasers at them, but not helping with the situation inside the school? 11. Colonel McGraw reported that Bortak used keys from the janitor to breach the room. Let's be real. It's simply called unlocking. Breaching is defined as to make a gap in by battering, according to Merriam Webster. Save the heroic sounding words for the investigations. But I digress. If Bortak was able to breach with the keys after an hour outside the room, would Ramos have been able to breach the classroom if the doors were locked? Were they locked? And if not, why? We now have testimony from law enforcement that a teacher propped open the entry door one minute before the accident, according to Colonel McGraw. We have the teacher who propped open the door calling 911 but never secured the door again. The suspect walks through said door at either 11.33 or 11.40, depending on which press conference you watched, and walks down a hall and into a room that may or may not have been locked. When it was locked by Ramos when he entered, it took Bortak locating a set of keys to breach. Would it have taken Ramos the same set of keys to enter? Would it have delayed him enough that the three officers who reportedly entered moments after Ramos would have been able to then confront him in the hallway prior to entering the classroom? When you pair all of this with the fact that an 18-year-old dropout with no known job, an addict mother he left to live in a small home with his grandma, somehow scrapes up at least $6,000 to buy weapons and gear and then proceeds to shoot that grandmother that took him in. Well, it's bizarre. To make the story even more bizarre, the Guardian News interviewed Ramos's mother. She said he had his reasons for doing what he did and please don't judge him. I just want to the innocent children who died, forgive me, forgive me, forgive my son. I know he had his reasons to get closer to his children instead of paying attention to things, the other bad things. The description on the YouTube video says, full report, Texas police made wrong decisions, says official. Very strange. 911 call timeline. 
12.03, caller from room 112, calls for 1 minute 23 seconds, whispering she's in room 112. 12.10, calls back and advised multiple dead. 12.13, calls again. 12.16, calls again and says 8 to 9 students alive. 12.19, another caller in room 111 calls and hangs up when another student tells her to hang up. 12.21, another call where you can hear three shots fired. 12.36, another call for 21 seconds. Caller stroke student was told to stay on the line and be quiet. Student said he shot the door. 12.43 and 12.47, she asked 911 to please send the police now. 12.46, she said she could hear the police next door. 12.50, shots are fired. 12.51, it's loud and sounds like officers are moving children out of the room. Logistics. We are told the shooter brought 15 total magazines into the school. 11 were dropped inside the school. 3 were on the suspect's body. 2 were in room 112. 6 were inside room 111. 5 were on the ground and 1 was in the rifle. 32 magazines were left outside the school, one outside the building and 31 inside the suspect's backpack that he did not take into the classrooms with him. There were 15 magazines at the crash site, two left at his residence. He had a total of 1,657 rounds of ammunition. 315 were inside the school, 142 were spent, 173 were live rounds 922 were outside the school, 22 were spent, 900 were live, 422 were at the crash site, 22 were spent, 400 were live. Law enforcement spent 35 rounds inside the school, 8 in the hallway and 27 in room 111 where the suspect was killed. Online warnings. Ramos sent a Facebook message about shooting his grandma and then another about going to shoot up the school before he left for Rob Elementary. In September of 2021, Ramos asked his sister to help him buy a gun, to which she refused. Ramos had an Instagram chat where he discussed being a school shooter on February 28, 2022. He then discussed buying a gun in March 1st, 2022 on Instagram. On March 3rd, 2022, someone on Instagram said, word on the street, you're buying a gun, to which Ramos replied, I just bought something RN right now. March 14th, 2022, on Instagram, Ramos said 10 more days. A user replied, are you going to shoot up a school or something? Ramos answered, no, stop asking dumb questions, you'll see. While many in the mainstream are calling for legislation to ban firearms and restrict all sorts of ownership, we must once again look at all of the warning signs that were staring us in the face. Despite the bizarre purchases and requests of family to purchase a gun, how can we overlook the fact that Facebook and Instagram both had opportunities to at least raise concern? Instagram, which is owned by Facebook stroke Meta, having the most obvious talking about being a school shooter just three months ago. I know what you're thinking. Do we really want social media spying on our conversations, though? Newsflash, they already are. 
January 6 detainees were discovered through social media posts and selfies. But CanCon, that's not private messages. No, it's not. But also, they're not private. Facebook and all the other social media platforms are private companies, and as such, we have no privacy. We may think our direct messages are private, but they are not. And let's be real, our text messages on our cell phones probably aren't either, but that's another topic. Why is it that these major social media conglomerates will flag our posts, suspenders, banners, labellers, misinformation, in a moment's time when we talk about COVID vaccines, the 2020 election, or Hunter's laptop, but when an 18-year-old mentions being a school shooter, crickets. Perhaps in the coming days we'll get answers to most of these questions, although probably not. So that's the end of that article. has some very interesting questions in there about discrepancies and so on. And as we say, how on earth did this 18-year-old school dropout manage to buy these rifles, ammo and um, body armour when the only job we know he had was at a Wendy's, which he quit supposedly when he said he'd saved up enough money to buy the guns. I mean, there has been speculation that perhaps he's involved with the cartels because, of course, um, Uvalde is not that far north of the southern border and we know the, the um, cartels are bringing in drugs and human trafficking and so on. So that part is still a mystery. Now, what this article didn't say was what the police were doing outside the school during that hour, as some say, or 40 minutes or whatever it might be. Uh, Daily Mail reports, and this was published on the 26th. And the title of the article is The Police Were Doing Nothing. Uvalde police handcuffed and pepper sprayed parents who urged them to storm the school including the dad of a murdered girl and a mum of two who got free, jumped a fence and rescued her kids herself. Frantic parents urged armed officers to charge into the school and stop the gunman. Instead, the officers handcuffed and restrained some of the parents. Angeli Rose Gomez said she was handcuffed by police, but when she was released, she jumped a fence and retrieved her kids herself. Angel Garza, whose daughter was killed, was handcuffed after trying to run into the school when he heard that a girl called Amory had been shot. He later found out that she was among those who died. Uvalde police are facing new criticism over first-hand accounts and videos showing them handcuffing and restraining frantic parents who were urging them to storm the Robb Elementary School building amid the massacre. The police were doing nothing. Angeli Rose Gomez told the Wall Street Journal they were just standing outside the fence. They weren't going in there or running anywhere. Gomez has two children in second and third grade and she reportedly drove 40 miles to the school after hearing of the attack. She was one of the desperate parents who encouraged police with increasing urgency to enter the school. Eventually, federal marshals put Gomez in handcuffs and told her she was under arrest for intervening in an active investigation, the Wall Street Journal reported. And it's got a series of photos, and um, 
a video here of Texas police restrained desperate parents trying to enter the school. Gomez said she was able to convince a Uvalde officer whom she knew to have the marshal free her and she took the opportunity to move away from the crowd, jump the school fence and ran inside the school where she rescued her children herself. She said that other parents also trying to get to their kids were tackled and even pepper sprayed by police. Angel Garza, whose daughter was killed, was handcuffed after trying to run into the school when he heard that a girl called Amory had been shot. Garza later told his heartbreaking story to Anderson Cooper. He explained that when he arrived on the scene, he tried to help a young girl covered in blood because he is a trained medic. The girl explained she wasn't hurt and the blood was from her best friend Amory. It was then that Angel realised the blood he was looking at came from his own daughter. He later found out that she was among those who died. And again, more photos. And it even shows uh, Texas cops holding down a parent. This is disgusting in my view. Awful. Javier Cazares' fourth grade daughter, Jacqueline Cazares, was also killed in the attack. Cazares told the Associated Press that he raced to the school when he heard about the shooting, arriving while police were still gathered outside the building. Upset that police were not moving in, he raised the idea of charging into the school with several other bystanders. Let's just rush in because the cops aren't doing anything like they're supposed to, he said. More could have been done. They were unprepared, he added. One shocking video shows officers holding some parents back as they tried to get inside. The footage shows a parent being pinned to the ground by an officer while another carrying a taser stands guard nearby. Other footages shows parents begging the cops, what are you doing, get inside the building. Another woman could be heard to say they're trapped inside as howls of pained anguish rang out in the background. It was unclear at what time the footage was shot. During a press conference on Thursday, Victor Escalon of the Texas Department of Public Safety addressed the parents' claims that they were restrained from helping their children. I have heard that information, but we have not verified that, Escalon said, adding that there were officers from all over at the scene and that he would interview them to find out what happened. Department of Public Safety Director Steve McCraw told reporters that 40 minutes to an hour elapsed from when Ramos opened fire on the school security officer to when the tactical team shot him, though a department spokesman said later that they could not give a solid estimate of how long the gunman was in the school or when he was killed. The bottom line is law enforcement was there, McCraw said. They did engage immediately. They did contain Ramos in the classroom. Meanwhile, a law enforcement official familiar with the investigation said the Border Patrol agents had trouble breaching the classroom door and had to get a staff member to open the room with a key. The official spoke on the condition of anonymity because he was not authorised to speak publicly about the ongoing investigation. Carranza said that the officers should have entered the school sooner. There were more of them. There was just one of him, he said. Questions remain over why it took police so long to get into the classroom where the kids were trapped with the gunman. Derek Sotelo, 26, who works in a tyre shop nearby, said parents were begging to be let into the school. 
They were just angry, especially the dads. We were wondering, what the heck is going on? Are they going in? The dads were saying, give me the vest, I'll go in there. Juan Carranza, whose house is located across the street from the school, said he witnessed nearby women shouting at officers, go in there, go in there, soon after the attack began. Carranza said the officers never did end up going inside. Now, I think I mentioned on Wednesday's show that there had been a drill at the high school in Uvalde back in March. And this is a report by New York Post saying haunting images show students pretending to be dead during a recent active shooter drill at the Texas Mass Murderers High School, conducted by the cop husband of one of the slain teachers. Ruben Ruiz, a Uvalde School District cop and husband of slain Rob Elementary School fourth grade teacher Eva Morellis, held the chillingly prophetic drill on March 22nd at Uvalde High School, where gunman Salvador Ramos, 18, was a student. Our overall goal is to train every Uvalde area law enforcement officer so that we can prepare as best as possible for any situation that may arise, the police agency said on its Facebook page. The 16-year veteran posted photos on Facebook showing him and fellow officers posing as active shooters. He also is seen addressing students about how to react to such emergencies. Several students are seen lying still in the halls as they played dead during the drill. Now I'm not going to read the rest of this as I have more things to focus on during the show, Um, but it's interesting that so many false flags have drills um, just before these things happen. I think the same thing happened at Sandy Hook. So there are a lot of things to be suspicious about here, and I'm going to cover a couple more things. Now, there's been speculation that the police were told to stand down, and uh, Mike Adams reported on this, and uh, I decided not to cover his report. Instead, I'm going to cover the Daily Mail again, that um, published this report yesterday, the 27th, Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo, who ordered cops not to engage Texas gunmen, is a former 911 dispatcher with an unremarkable career who is elected to city council just days before the massacre. Uvalde's School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo is under fire for refusing to let his officers engage an active shooter at Robb Elementary. The gunman, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, barricaded himself in a classroom. During a bombshell media conference Friday, Texas Department of Public Safety head Stephen McCraw slammed Arredondo for failing to engage Ramos. With the benefit of hindsight from where I'm sitting now, of course, it was not the right decision. It was the wrong decision, period, McCraw said. The department, which presides over the town school seven school district, is comprised of four officers, one police chief and a detective. Uvalde's school district police chief is under fire for refusing to let his officers engage the active shooter at Robb Elementary School after the gunman barricaded himself in a classroom as kids cowered inside and called 911. During a bombshell presser Friday, 
Texas Department of Public Safety head Stephen McCraw slammed Chief Pete Arredondo for failing to engage 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, mistakenly believing the teen had finished his killing spree and was hiding out from cops. With the benefit of hindsight from where I'm sitting now, of course, it was not the right decision. It was the wrong decision, period. The assertion from the state safety official comes as the school district's police force continues to face scrutiny for their handling of the shooting. McCraw revealed that 911 calls have been made by students while locked in the classroom with Ramos as Arredondo and his men waited outside the room for more than an hour. Eventually, border patrol agents who rushed to the scene after hearing the incident unfold on scanners breached the locked classroom door with one fatally shooting Ramos. According to a law enforcement official who anonymously spoke to the New York Times, the agents had been puzzled as to why they were being told not to enter the school and engage the gunman. McCraw asserted that Arredondo, identifying the district chief by title and not by name, made a miscalculation assuming the active shooter situation had become a barricade event. Arredondo 50 became the focus of backlash from parents, wondering if their children could have been saved. Arredondo, who was born in Uvalde and was elected to city council just days before the massacre, has had an unremarkable career as a cop. He started his law enforcement career as a 911 dispatcher for Uvalde's town police department in 1993 and over the course of the next 20 years worked his way up to eventually assume the role of assistant police chief at the department in 2010. Afterwards, he worked various roles at Webb County Sheriff's Office in Laredo, a small Texas town a little more than 100 miles from Uvalde. He then moved to the city's school district police force, United ISD, which is comprised of 88 sworn peace officers. I'm not going to go through the rest of this as it repeats a lot of the information that I've already shared, but there is something interesting that I want to share with you. This relates to this um, training in active shooter scenario, and there's a tweet thread from Mike Baker. I've spent the first past few days researching the training of Uvalde officers, including the tactics they were expected to use to halt school shooters. The documents are jarring. Here's a thread of our findings so far. In the past two years, the Uvalde School District has hosted at least two active shooter training days. One of them was just two months ago. Ago, The trainings included both classroom teachings and role-playing scenarios inside school hallways. The Uvalde training session two months ago relied on guidelines that give explicit expectations for officers responding to an active shooter. The training is clear. Time is of the essence. The first priority is to move in and confront the attacker. And it's got a screenshot of the uh, manual that they worked with saying exactly that. But how should officers confront the gunman with a tactical team? The training says that's probably not feasible because the urgency is so high. A single officer, the training says, may need to confront the suspect on their own. And it's highlighted the short duration and high casualty rates produced by these events requires immediate response. 
to reduce the loss of life. In many cases, that immediate response means a single solo officer response until such times as other forces can arrive. The best hope that innocent victims have is that officers immediately move into action to isolate, distract or neutralise the threat, even if that means one officer acting alone. The guidelines provide sobering clarity. The first officers may be risking their lives, but, it says, innocent lives take priority. A first responder unwilling to place the lives of the innocent above their own safety should consider another career field. And interestingly, and I can't remember who this was, and I can't lay my hands on the article, but um, at one of these press conferences, it was said that the officers didn't go in because they might have got shot. And it's like, well, hello, you know, you're supposed to be in there protecting these poor kids against this lunatic. And you're worried about your own skin? I mean, this goes completely against the training that they supposedly had, um, you know, only two months ago. It says, priority of life. First responders to the active shooter scene will usually be required to place themselves in harm's way and display uncommon acts of courage to save the innocent. As first responders, we must recognise that innocent life must be defended. A first responder, unwilling to place the lives of the innocent above their own safety, should consider another career field. And it goes on, the training expectations are obviously in stark contrast to what we are seeing in Uvalde. Police officials have said that officers were reluctant to engage the gunmen because they could have been shot. And actually... Uh, I just found the article, it was in this thread. Washington Post uh, is linked. Police slow to engage with gunmen because they could have been shot, official says. The guidelines actually provide scenarios in which officers are shot, including one modelled after the Santa Fe high school shooting, also in Texas. The scenario explains that if one officer is shot, the second is expected to go on responding solo. It's clear that officers did not follow that scenario this week. 19 officers staged outside the classroom. 78 minutes elapsed before they entered. Children repeatedly called 911 from from the inside. It was the wrong decision, top officer says. We're continuing to scrutinise the Uvalde response. Meanwhile, here's a look at nationwide training for active shooters. If you know children are being murdered, why do you wait? Get in there. And a link to the New York Times. In mass shootings, police are trained to confront the attacker. So they failed miserably. Finally, um, there's a video on 153news.net showing um, a couple being interviewed that apparently are the parents of one of the children in the school. And this says, Uvalde school shooting hoax, low-rent crisis actor parents, Jesse and Esmeralda Rodriguez. Uh, I'm not going to play the video, but these are the key points. One, we're supposed to believe the mother got in contact with the daughter in the middle of a mass shooting and received an update from her daughter that a mass shooting was unfolding or that the daughter was about to go missing. Mother calls her own daughter the daughter. 
Mother doesn't even know what grade her own daughter is in. It says in the video, she answers, well, she's 10 years old, but I don't know what grade she's in. How likely is that? And um, that's the key. Those are the key points, really, about this couple who don't seem at all distraught about the fact that they can't find their daughter. So it does rather question whether we have another situation of crisis actors and uh, so on. So I'm going to move on now to the Durham-Sussman uh, trial latest. This is a report by uh, conservativebrief.com. Jury begins deliberations in Durham trial of Clinton lawyer Sussman. Special prosecutor John Durham's case against Michael Sussman a former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer charged with lying to the FBI, was sent to the jury on Friday. According to reports, jurors will continue deliberating the evidence on Tuesday, following the Memorial Day holiday. The verdict, which is expected to be a key test of Durham's nearly three-year investigation, should come next week, the Wall Street Journal reported. It wasn't about national security, it was about promoting opposition research against the opposition candidate, Donald Trump, prosecutor Jonathan Algor said in closing the prosecution's case before the jury Friday morning. In response, a lawyer for Sussman, Sean Berkovich, said, This is a case about mis misdirection, claiming that prosecutors used sleight of hand to transform a short meeting his client had with the FBI's general counsel into a giant political conspiracy theory. This is the first case that Durham has brought that has actually gone to trial. He got a guilty plea from former FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith, who falsified a document filed with Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in connection with a surveillance warrant to spy on a 2016 Trump campaign advisor. The FBI fired Kleinsmith afterwards and he was disbarred, However, he was reinstated by the D.C. Bar Association in December 2021. The Wall Street Journal reports, In September, the special counsel's office obtained an indictment of Mr. Sussman that accused him of misrepresenting his motivation for providing information to the Federal Bureau of Investigation about a purported secret computer connection between a server connected to Mr. Trump's company and a Russian bank. Mr. Sussman's lie, prosecutors allege, is that he said he was turning the material over to the Bureau out of civic concern rather than on behalf of his clients, which included the presidential campaign of Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton. FBI investigators dismissed the server allegations within weeks in 2016, but the episode has continued to reverberate for years. Mr. Sussman pleaded not guilty and has maintained he provided the information to the FBI based on genuine U.S. national security concerns, even though he had separately worked on the research on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Mr. Sussman is a serious national security lawyer, Mr. Berkowitz said in his closing arguments, adding his clients had felt compelled to pass on what he believed to be credible data from a top expert. Lawyers for Sussman have also argued that there is evidence indicating that FBI officials were aware of his Democratic affiliations since he had interacted with the agency several times over the summer of 2016 on behalf of Democratic groups. 
but Republicans say that Durham's allegations exposed actions they argue as having inappropriately undermined Trump's time in office. A lot of Americans are concerned with the fact that a campaign lawyer for the Clinton campaign could go to the FBI and provide information to the FBI that led to an investigation of the opposite party and it seems to not have held much water, Senator Lindsey Graham said at a hearing with FBI Director Christopher Wray this week. They also point to a text message that Sussman sent to then-FBI General Counsel James Baker informing him that he had something sensitive to discuss, which turned out to be a false claim that Trump had a secret back-channel link to a Kremlin-aligned bank in Moscow. Sussman told Baker he was not acting on behalf of any client, but Durham's prosecutors have argued that, in fact, he came to see Baker on behalf of the Clinton campaign. He went on to meet Baker in September at the FBI General Counsel's office in the J. Edgar Hoover building. Mr. Baker didn't take notes of the meeting, but he briefed two other officials soon after, and both of them jotted down that Mr. Sussman didn't bring in the information for a client. One of them also noted that he represented Democrats, the Wall Street Journal reported. Neither official remembered those conversations with Mr. Baker when they testified this week, and jurors saw and heard conflicting evidence and testimony about what the FBI officials believed about the source of the information and how important knowing the source was, the paper added. Baker testified last week he was 100% confident Sussman told him he was not providing the information on behalf of a client, which led the agency to treat the information more seriously than it otherwise would have. So there you have it. Um, we have to wait now for the jury to finish deliberating on this. Um, Cash Patel is saying he's confident that Sussman will be uh, convicted. We'll have to wait and see, because as we know, there are people in the jury that have um, a definite bias towards the Democrat Party, and same goes for the judge. Uh, Durham uh, dismissed the offer by the judge, I think it was last year or earlier this year, to recuse himself because of his links. Um, Durham said, no, it's absolutely fine, no problem. Um, and, of course, we then had the jury selection in which several of the jurors are, have links to the Democrat Party, either as donors or um, other reasons, and have claimed that they will still be unbiased. So we'll have to wait and see, see what comes on Tuesday after the holiday weekend. Oh, and incidentally, um, Kash Patel has been interviewed by Dave on X22 report. I haven't had time to watch all of that yet, but I would suggest that um, you listen to that because Cash is giving out a lot of interesting information about what's been going on behind the scenes. He, he even said that they've been running a PSYOP for the last five years. I think those were the words he used. And he also referenced the real cue. So interesting okay so moving on this is relating to the Pfizer CEO saying the quiet part out loud and as I said at the beginning I don't really like that cliche but I think it's most appropriate for what we've got on record 
And this comes from a tweet by Army for Trump 2024, straight from the mouth of the Pfizer CEO. Now tell me about conspiracy theorists. And actually, he is, um, he or she, I'm not sure which, um, is has retweeted the original tweet by Potato Head. Holy crap, can you believe Pfizer CEO says it's their dream to reduce the population by 50% in 2023. So I'm just going to sh- play this video. It's only short. I think that uh, it's really fulfilling of a dream that we had together with my leadership team when we started in 19. Uh, the first week we met in January of 19 in California and to set up the goals for the next five years. And one of them, was by 2023, we will reduce the number of people in the world by 50%. I think today, this dream is becoming uh, reality. So it's really a purpose-driven company. So there you have it. The ghouls are clapping at the prospect of half the population of the planet being removed and we know that they're using the bioweapon vaccine for that very purpose so and i also have time to just cover um something else on pfizer related to the covid vaccine this is from epoch times and the title is did pfizer commit huge fraud in its covid vaccine research it was actually published on the 17th, and it was from Dr. McCola. It's becoming more and more apparent as to why Pfizer tried, albeit unsuccessfully, to withhold their COVID jab trial data for 75 years. Now with the release of the data, internet sleuths are uncovering problems suggestive of fraud and manipulation, including the suspicious site 4444. In November 2021, Brooke Jackson, a whistleblower who worked on Pfizer's Phase 3 COVID jab trial in the fall of 2020, warned she'd seen evidence of fraud in the trial. With the release of Pfizer trial data, which they tried to withhold for 75 years, additional problems suggestive of fraud and data manipulation are coming to light. Trial site 1231, located in Argentina, somehow managed to recruit 10% of the total trial participants, 4,501 in all, and they did so in just three weeks and without a contract research organisation, a feat that has many questioning whether fraud was committed. The lead investigator for trial site 1231 is Dr Fernando Pollack, who also happens to be a consultant for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, RBPAC, a current adjunct professor at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, an investigator for Fundacion Infant, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the first author of Pfizer's paper, Safety and Efficacy of the BNT162B2 mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, published at the end of December 2021. Site 1231 held a second enrolment session, given the designation of Site 4444. The 4444 trial site data 
raise another red flag. It supposedly enrolled 1,275 patients in a single week from September 22nd through 27, 2020, the last week that recruitment could take place to meet the data cut-off for the FDA meeting in December 2020. Was site 4444 fabricating data to create the appearance that the jab was having an effect? In November 2021, Brooke Jackson, a whistleblower who worked on Pfizer's Phase 3 COVID jab trial in the fall of 2020, warned she'd seen evidence of fraud in the trial. Data were falsified, patients were unblinded, the company hired poorly trained people to administer the injections and follow-up on reported side effects lagged way behind. The revelation was published in the British Medical Journal. In his November 2nd, 2021 report, investigative journalist Paul Thacker wrote, Revelations of poor practices at a contract research company helping to carry out Pfizer's pivotal COVID-19 vaccine trial raise questions about data integrity and regulatory oversight. For researchers who were testing Pfizer's vaccine at several sites in Texas during that autumn, speed may have come at the cost of data integrity and patient safety. Staff who conducted quality control checks were overwhelmed by the volume of problems they were finding. Jackson, a former regional director of Ventavia Research Group, a research organisation charged with testing Pfizer's COVID jab at several sites in Texas, repeatedly informed her superiors of poor laboratory management, patient safety concerns and data integrity issues. Thacker wrote, when her concerns were ignored, she finally called the US Food and Drug Administration and filed a complaint via email. Jackson was fired later that day after just two weeks on the job. According to her separation letter, management decided she was not a good fit for the company after all. She provided the BMJ with dozens of internal company documents, photos, audio recordings and emails proving her concerns were valid and according to Jackson this was the first time she'd ever been fired in her 20-year career as a clinical research coordinator. Uh, the BMJ had their report censored on this topic and there's something else, I don't have time to go through the whole of this uh, report because it's quite long, but a little lower down um, it says there's a Twitter user named Jicky Leaks who posted a series of tweets questioning data from Pfizer trial sites 1231 and 4444. And the key thing I want to point out is, as noted by Jicky Leaks, Polak is literally the busiest doctor on the planet because in addition to all those roles, he also managed to single-handedly enrol 4,500 patients in three weeks which entails filling out some 250 pages of case report forms for each patient. That's about 1,125,000 pages total. CRFs are documents used in clinical research to record standardised data from each patient, including adverse events. So, as I said, I don't have time to read the rest of this, but, um, of course... You know, this immunity that these vaccine companies are given, that is actually null and void if they are guilty of fraud in terms of the 
data that they've used to support the approval of these bioweapons, as we know they are. So um, that's about all I have time for today. We'll have to wait and see what happens with the Durham trial and see if we get any more clarification about this uh, school shooting, which is absolutely tragic, of course, and prayers go out to the parents of the children who were casualties of this horror. So thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me on Wednesday for another Cosmic Creating show. Again, I'm still in Arizona waiting to find out when I'm going to be up in Colorado, so I may have to miss Wednesday. We'll have to wait and see. But anyway, um, as I say, thank you for listening. Thank you to Nancy for producing and also to Derek Condit of mysticalwares.com for sponsoring the radio station and making all this possible. So until next time, stay well, be safe, and bye for now. You have been listening to Cosmic Creating with Jan Shaw, updating current reality, a production of CosmicReality.com.